Well, it's funny, for, for at least 20 years now, it's been a somewhat self-lacerating Western conversation. Yes. Like, travel can change us. Oh, but travel does mm -hmm. these bad things. And, of course, the answer to all the questions is yes. It does yeah, transform it does you. It does do bad <laughs> things. If, if managed improperly, it can lead to development that's not sustainable. It's, if it's managed called properly, like human beings, right? We have all those sides of us, right? <laughs> Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk to filmmaker Peggy Vale, whose documentary Gringo Trails is about how travelers, and backpackers in particular, affect the communities they visit. This incredible beach, you know, unspoiled, that nobody knew about. But I asked, whatever you do, don't tell people. Welcome to party. Body. It's the beach that I had been at with thousands and thousands of people. It was staggering. That's an excerpt from the trailer to Gringo Trails, and it's amazing how many themes and locations this documentary film shares with the fictional Leonardo DiCaprio movie The Beach, which I featured in an earlier episode this season. I actually appear as myself in one point in Gringo Trails, talking about the complexities and contradictions of backpacker travel in places like Thailand. I've decided to entitle this podcast episode, Backpacker Go Home, How Tourism is Ruining Everything, which is an admittedly clickbait title that I stole directly from a Newsweek article about Peggy's film. I was actually interviewed in that Newsweek article, and while I'd like to think that I covered the topic with nuance and thoughtfulness, it feels like brainless clickbait is the default mode for headlines these days. Yet despite the clickbait title of this episode, Peggy and I discuss the many effects and potential effects of tourism on host communities, including the ways that independent travel can foster positive change in some places. Peggy spent 10 years making gringo trails, and she really knows how traveler scenes can evolve, sometimes in better ways than others. This episode is brought to you by Airtrex, the round-the-world and multi-stop flight planning service that flew me around the world last winter, including to a few Asian locations that are mentioned in gringo trails. Airtrex is actually a great way to save money on multi-stop international airfare, so check out what they have to offer at Airtrex.com. Now, while I was on that trip across Asia last winter, I kept everything I needed for the journey, a 35-liter pack by Tortuga, my other sponsor. I lived and traveled out of that Tortuga pack for three months last winter, and it was the perfect size and function for the journey. That Tortuga pack is called a set-out. You can check it out and other travel packs like it online at rolfpotscom Tortuga. And if you find something you like, you can get a 10% discount off your order by using the promo code DEVIATE. Okay, here's Peggy Vale and I talking about the ways, depending on how it's managed, backpacker travel can help save or at times destroy the destinations it touches. How did you find Yossi Ginsberg? Is that how you say his name? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yossi, yeah. Uh -huh. um, through my research when I was in Bolivia, um, and, and just so the yeah. listeners know, Yossi Ginsberg is a guy who got completely lost yeah. in the Bolivian Amazon for 40 days, almost died, was rescued, wrote a book about it, and then suddenly all these Israelis started coming um, to that part of Bolivia based on his story. So yeah, it's well, a little your... over three weeks, actually. It was a little bit over okay, three, three weeks. weeks. Yeah, okay. yeah, which mm -hmm. is, to me, long enough. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, can, I, can, <laughs> I can't even it's imagine, actually. It's a long time to be alone in the jungle, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he, uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful storyteller, and um, he had written a book 
about this, right? About his being lost in the jungle, and but but he also went back and um, and to you know met with the people that had helped save him, and helped them actually get started with uh, uh, the Chalalan Ecolodge, which, which ultimately became that. But um, so he had a long-term relationship to the communities, and I heard about him when I was in Bolivia doing my research the first time. So I knew that he. So I had people to, like, would say Yossi Ginsberg brought me here, or Yossi Ginsberg, um, I'm a tour guide because Yossi Ginsberg wrote this book and now all these people come here. Yeah, it wasn't not quite like that, but definitely, I mean, there were people that knew about him and said, oh, do you know about this, this guy, you know, this book is apparently, because we had talked to a bunch of Israeli travelers, and of course, they at that time, a lot of them knew the book. I think as time goes on, that changes, but I think still, it's still quite a lore in the, um, especially in the regions, in that region. So yeah, so that's how I that's how I found it. So I just contacted him, and um, and he was he was great, and we um, set up an interview, and then that was first I interviewed him on email for my dissertation, and then decided that I wanted to to film him as well. It's interesting how you talk about stories. There's there's far more famous story versions of travel. Um, of course, I maybe the reason we ended up meeting is that I wrote about this in the context of the filming of The Beach in Thailand, and that was on, on Kopp and Maya Beach, which is now closed. You know, the, the beach made that beach so, f the beach, the movie that made that beach so famous that they've had to close it for a few years now. Mm -hmm. And then actually, I think 10% of the Thai economy is tourism, but 10% of the New Zealand economy is tourism. Right. And Lord of the Rings, of course, <laughs> um, revolutionized the travel there. Can you, off the top of your head, can you think of other stories that have, have really, either small ones like Yossi's or big ones like Hollywood movies that have changed the way a destination has been visited? Um, well, if you go back all the way to Burton's time, I suppose, I suppose, or Lawrence of Arabia, or like, you know, a lot of the, I mean, and this is, you know, this kind of the same trajectory of travel writing that comes from these stories, right, from long ago, from whether it's the 1800s and 1900s. Um, so of more recent times, I think, I, th I guess things like, I don't know, under the Tuscan, you know, Eat, Pray, Love oh, uh, had Eat, an Pray, Love, I think is that a That had example, big, yeah. wild. Really? Wild actually has had a pretty big role. I mean, it's had a, I'd say it's affected. I know people that were affected by that and wanted to all of a sudden start hiking different, not whether it's the trail that she hiked or, um, or elsewhere, but definitely were affected by that. So interesting. Yeah, I, I'm not thinking off the top of my head right now of other stories. I mean, the reason I wanted Yossi is because of the research, but also with Costas and the Thailand story, I wanted to be able to travel, to follow a story from start to finish and show, because part of what I was thinking about was showing over time how it goes from word of mouth to maybe a book to maybe a, to a film and, and, and Kostas, so forth. And Kostas yeah. being a guy who just said to the ferry driver in 1979, yeah, I don't want to stop here, yeah. go to the <laughs> yeah. next island. And he sort of, you know, independently in his own little way discovered Hadron Beach, which a decade later was like a party beach and two decades later had like 15,000 people there for New Year's and it really shows how in a, in a lifetime a place can go to seeming like paradise yeah. to being such a meathead party destination. <laughs> how did you find Acostas? I found him, and it's true, I actually went to Coping on myself and thought it was paradise. <laughs> what year did so you like, go? I was there in 86. Okay, was it a party destination? Yet? No, oh. not at all. Not, okay. not like that. 
Yeah, I mean, okay. not anywhere near that. I think, I think it was the late 90s, like late 90s when the first full moon party happened. Mm. So it was kind of, that's when it started, just like that was when it was really starting to, um, to transform, I think. You know, but I definitely heard about it, but not as a party destination at all. I, when I showed up in Thailand in 1999, it had its reputation as a party destination. And when I came full circle, when I traveled to Asia for two years and came back and started writing Vagabonding, some people invited me. I just felt too old. Yeah. <laughs> I felt too old to go to, so I've never been there. I've never been to Hadren Beach and, and, and done the full moon parties. But you have some footage of sort of how gross it was, you know? Yeah. And actually, have you heard of um, Vong Vieng in Laos? Oh, yeah. I was actually going to bring that up because they kind of turned it back around again from being a party destination from what I've heard. Did they? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the community got involved, I think, because they were kind of fed up from what I, what I heard. You know, I, and, and I, I haven't been back there because so, we did film there as well. Oh, did you film there we as well? Did, so I could use, I don't know, I might do something with that footage, yeah. Okay, and, and again, putting a pin in that just so the listeners know, Vong Vieng, if, if, you, if you guys haven't been there, is sort of a little, a little river town between Luang Prabang, which is the royal capital of Laos, and Vientiane, which is the capital of Laos. And when I was traveling in 99, it just started out as sort of a river town where you go and you take a, um, an inner tube down the river mm-hmm. and you maybe stay at a place and drink some beer Lao. Yeah. And within 10 years, it had also turned into this knucklehead party place. I know. That was very, like after Koh Phangan, that was the next yeah. kind of place. And I, because we were there in the same year then, because we were there in 1999 as well. Okay. That's when we filmed first. Okay. Yeah. So we were yeah. there the same year. That's really funny. That would have been. <laughs> that <that's, laughs> that is really funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. But, oh, but like <laughs> people were jumping into the river and brain and killing themselves on rocks. <laughs> I know. And they were taking like speed and. Right. Red Bull and vodka, and they were just being complete morons. I'm sure I'm exaggerating. I'm sure some people had a perfectly <laughs> experienceful experience, but it turned into another one of these backpacker trail cliche towns yeah. like Copanyan. And so if I knew that you'd been there, I'd forgotten about it. So what did you find when you went to Vong Vieng? It was actually, uh, you know, because it didn't feel yet like party town, you know, I mean, it felt like still it was, you know, growing travelers community, but I wasn't, that's a hilarious image, by the way, people <laughs> on those inner tubes and going across the water and slamming into rocks. Right. Pretty tragic. That is so tragic. Well, they would, they would <laughs> jump off the cliffs, too. Yeah, I, mean, I remember would... that. I mean, I do remember seeing that stuff, yeah. but I don't remember, I don't remember it being a huge party destination. It wasn't, because it wasn't like, it wasn't like Copangan, you know, at that, right. at that time already that was starting to become, that had become one already. But um, no, we actually had some, some, it was some nice, we did some nice filming there. We just um, followed a few travelers from Australia. Um, and a guy from Sri Lanka, because we wanted to show travelers from lots of different backgrounds, actually. And um, yeah, so we actually made a short film called Steaming with the Prez about a little, a little um, steam room that these travelers had gone to. I have to show it to you sometime. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's like yeah, sm- a really short film that we just did in you know, festivals and stuff. Huh. But um, yeah, so it was, it was actually still, it was still like kind of on the earlier, felt like on the earlier stages, right? When I was there, but, uh, yeah, yeah sure. me too, me too, yeah, and we loved it. We thought it was beautiful. But then, maybe five years ago, there was a lot of articles in online about how Vong Vieng turned to this horrible-sounding place where totally, you know, it was just sort of. And I hate to disparage people I haven't met, but it sounded like idiot central. Like if you totally. had nothing, if you had zero ideas about how to travel, you would go and get really drunk or 
you know, take some drugs in Vong Vieng and then just do dumb things. I know. I know. Well, I think that's partially, it's the same thing though with the people that are going to Copangon just for the party. Like, right. you know, so they're going in and they, I mean, when I, we interviewed local people, they were like, yeah, people used to stay for a couple months and now they come in for like two days and they come right. in for the party. Yeah. And so I think that's, it's the, I call it the safari bucket list. You know, it's just, let's go to the, the five places, the big five or something. And that's, that's all we want to see is, you know, make it to that. And that's become the bucket list destination for a lot of people. Copanian. Yeah, the, yeah. That for that wanna, reason. They want to hit the, the they full They want to hit that party. party. Yeah, they want to yeah. hit the party. Not that it's wrong to party. It just, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like not the only reason you go. Well, it's literally was that way. I mean, a lot of people who invited me to go with them um, were going there just because of its reputation. Mm -hmm. And that they, they literally were like, yeah, we're going to get there at like 10 o'clock, but the party doesn't really start till midnight. And <laughs> then we'll just leave, you know, a couple of days later. And I'm just like, really? You're going to go? <laughs> um, and so I think this is worth digging into because I think that there's certain ideals attached to backpackers, mm -hmm. you know, that there's this stereotype. There's a sort of a self-congratulatory stereotype among backpackers that backpackers are going slow and... <laughs> They're more environmentally aware and they're younger and they're hipper and they're more likely to meet local people and learn local languages. And um, it's about the journey rather than the destination. And um, it has more authenticity, which mm -hmm. is sort of its own cliche. Mm -hmm. But at the same rate, more, it feels like more than half of your footage is about backpackers sort of being, you know, just pushing it a little bit and doing things that aren't necessarily good for the local cultures. And so amid this idealistic backpacker culture, uh, what went wrong or, or what was wrong about the assumptions of backpackers to begin with? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think partially it's too, it's like having, like starting to kind of retrospect and look back and say, well, what was my own role in thinking about some of the things? But honestly, it was more like going, when I went back to those destinations and saw how the changes of like what the changes can be or can become right? by going back you mean you went to there the first locations. as a backpacker as a young person who wasn't an academic and then you went back as a filmmaker yeah one one of the locations i had gone back to i had been to as a backpacker and the mm -hmm. other two i had been to as a researcher okay. and then one you know and then the molly one was just going for filming so it was they were all different kind of levels to it but um i think what went you know what changed was my own realization of what our impact is, number one, that's, you know, for me, but for the backpackers themselves, I think it's, I think the numbers had a big, a big difference. And I think just the, the different way we tell stories and we are traveling the globe is that it used to be, I think when I started the tell me a souvenir, that idea of, you know, memory, souvenir, French word, for, right? For souvenir, like you've written about too, um, in your souvenir book, mm -hmm. is like, I think stories were a, a kind of more salient, or they were the they were the ways that spread the news and that um, were the most important ways travelers kind of shared that information. Person right? to person stories. Person to person stories, yeah. or in writing, or in you know. And now that's just like the visual through Instagram and through social media has become as important, if not more, in some in some some cases, for places and how it affects places is is the visual story that's being told, like the soundbite story through a visual or a frame. Um, so I think that's a big change. So I think it's just traveling. I think the news is traveling so much faster that if you have more people, you're going to have more impact, number one. Um, but I think some of the motivations when it gets to those levels in places that have become trendy and, you know, become the bucket list, that's what changes it too. It's just, it becomes trendier. 
you know, you're going to have people that aren't there necessarily for the motivation of really wanting to meet folks. They want more of an exotic backdrop, possibly, you know, instead of, instead of what the, you know, like the, the good stuff about travel, the exchange between cultures and stuff like that. Does that make sense? I mean, is it? Well, it does. It even, you would talk to Eric Cohen, the, the anthropologist. Is he an anthropologist? He's a sociologist. A sociologist. Yeah. Um, and we're very related fields. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the sociology and the anthropology of tourism is, is both very interesting to read. I can put mm -hmm. some recommendations in the show notes. But he's, he's actually documented how you have sort of these, these drifters and pioneers like mm -hmm. Costas Christ who, who come onto an empty island and sort of live with a family and sort mm -hmm. of enjoy it on its own terms and there's no Coca-Cola and there's no flushing toilets. And then you have the early backpackers who come and then it becomes a backpacker scene mm -hmm. or maybe a party scene where it has a reputation but only among young people or among independent travelers. And then pretty soon the local people are making money and maybe a regional person will put up a hotel and mm -hmm. pretty soon there's international hotels. So what you were just talking about is a documented thing where, oh, yeah. it, where it goes from somebody staying in, in Aunt Fong's house mm -hmm. and then 10 years later people partying their brains out on the beach and 10 years after that you have a, a Hilton on yeah. the beach <laughs> yeah. and people flying in. You know, there's yeah. like a Koh Samui which uh, shows up in your documentary has has an international airport now. You oh know? yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I liken it to gentrification. Okay. You know, so I look at I, I look at this whole process, um, which is why I wanted to have places in different stages of that. But I look at the whole process as the same way, like tourism globalization is similar to gentrification in the urban context. So I kind of like an artist to backpackers, um, both of which I was <laughs> at one point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I, you know, I, you know, I've saw a difference in my own neighborhood in, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. You know, oh, okay. I saw like as as the artist moved in first, you know, initially. Um, what, what, got year, to know. what year window are we looking at? It's, it's kind of the same window as okay. so, so nine, like the mid 90s um, to or early, actually early 90s, like 80, like 91 through, you know, late 80s. Sorry, late 80s through um, initial place uh -huh. it, it, that I moved to. Well, I remember being in Thailand in the early 2000s and reading about Williamsburg. Yeah. And hearing yeah. about it being hip, hipster yes. central. It, it, it tur like the, the turnover came when I think in 1994, this, uh, this um, article came out called The New Bohemia in New York Magazine. And that mm. was like, okay, we're, like real estate's moving in. <laughs> but I mean, I, I saw the difference, you know, from like just, you know, like a bunch of artists when, we when I was an artist moved in the 80, late 80s. So, so same time I went to Copangon. That's so interesting. And just yeah. so listeners know, um, Williamsburg is, is a is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, yeah. right? Oh yeah. That was that was very industrial in the, in the late '80s, and then became hipster central in the early 2000s. And then I don't know where it is now, but they're building huge skyscrapers oh, yeah. there now. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and the role of storytelling was critical to the to the transformation in both both cases, really. You know. Interesting. What stories interesting you tell parallel. about you know places. Um, so, and I'd like to say I was five years old when I moved there, but I wasn't. Okay. okay. <laughs> Just <kidding. laughs> Now that I'm dating myself. <laughs> Peggy Vale, a 29-year-old filmmaker. Right, right. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting that there's, there's, there can be a parallel between um, hipsters, young people who move to a place like Williamsburg, and backpackers who yeah. go to a place yeah. like Copanyan, and in fact, I call I use the phrase "travel hipsters" in vagabonding, mm -hmm. and I didn't I wasn't really thinking about Williamsburg people. I was only learning about them. But 
I think that there is a certain fashion consciousness mm -hmm. among both types, and there's sort of a we were here firstness totally. among both types that ignores the it's you know, the it's the, the, the virgin territory that idea right. of like you know right and and yeah exactly when in fact there's local people and I want to get to local people in the travel context who are there who are very much affected. Mm -hmm. And in gentrification, there are often poor people who are affected and often displaced by gentrification. Exactly, exactly. And maybe gentrification can be another podcast. Yeah. But, um, let's look at let's look at the local uh, aspect of this because we, we talk about travelers that come in, um, be they young backpackers um, who are careful about things or are knucklehead partiers or big mass tourists who come into a place maybe a, maybe a generation later, but it's not just travelers. There's local people there too. Mm -hmm. um, and keeping in mind that I don't just want to be negative here, you know. Yeah, yeah, me neither. Travel, travel <laughs> and is over... ruining civilization. <laughs> exactly, which is what What's the it? hope was with the film, that no, it wasn't. That's true, that's true. <laughs> and there is nuance in the film, and, and I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a believer in travel. I, I think it's, it's good to be cognizant of the negative parts of travel, but I think travel can be good for local people as well. Oh, I as... totally do, especially if you, the money's staying local, if you're exchanging stories. You know, I, I think travel is one of, the best ways we get to know each other and the world and we have more open minds and um you know unfortunately it's it's for so many privileged people that are able to do that so the i would love to start like a kickstarter campaign to get people passports and money to take trips they can't right <laughs> that'd be really cool <laughs> that that would be interesting you know and traditionally i think a lot of poor people have been transformed by travel through military service mm -hmm. yes. you know yeah right or, good or point. other yeah. working class professions mm -hmm. and um yeah if there could be a way again that's right another, wouldn't that be great we could do a big kickstarter campaign right, right? <laughs> so well, that's almost another podcast <laughs> which is which is um the idea of how and and not just poor people but even provincial people i'm a guy mm -hmm. from kansas um which is a place that doesn't send as many travelers uh overseas as a place mm -hmm. like new york or oregon right. or california right. or even texas and so just the idea that there's so much to learn at a visceral level. Mm -hmm. And Kansas is an example where a lot of the world travel people you've met are people who've been in the military, you know, who aren't necessarily That's traveling. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For upper middle class reasons. Um, and so we can come back to that, but let's, let's we can talk. democratize travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, America is this, is this giant country too, and, and so it's less normalized than a place like um, New Zealand or Germany or other yeah. places that sends yeah. travelers into the country more often, and I want to get back to that, but first, what's at stake for local people, good and bad, when a place that was once isolated becomes a travel destination? Well, when you first said what's at stake, I was starting to think, um, it's, it, first of all, it, economy. You know, economy is at stake, and, and uh, you know, when it comes really down to it, this, you know, the tourism industry is about people making money, you know, like for, for local people, right, that are being visited. Um, or the places that were the destinations that are being visited. So what's at stake is that, especially in developing nations, I think the economy is just, there, there are so many more people that are relying on tourism um, that don't have other means that this is, that means the stakes are quite high. Um, so I think when we talk about like changing tourism in different places, if we're talking about so like a rural, uh, a rural town, rural, rural village in Thailand versus um, New York City, they're going to have different. These are different conversations, you know, like in, in terms of who gets involved to to have a say in how tourism will develop in that place. So I think the stakes are really high. Um, 
And also for, for tourism to develop the way people want to have it themselves in places. And I think that's something that until recently, I don't think that that was taken into consideration as much. So, so I think that's changing. I think that's changing a lot where there are more people that have a say because we realize like, look, if you, if you are going to a place that has been over touristed, people aren't going to stop wanting to go there anyway, right? I mean, to a point, I guess. I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> maybe they'll just keep going. That was a little bit like a long version of what you're saying. Well, but. I guess it depends on who's, <laughs> who's coming. There's people who just want, they have six days off, so they want a warm place. True. You know, and it might be vulgar to a, a more nuanced backpacker traveler, but mm -hmm. to a person who's just churning through and, and, and is creating a lot of money for a $3 billion a day business, mm -hmm. travel is mm -hmm. a $3 billion a day business globally, it's a different motivation. So this is one problem about talking about this topic is that we can talk about the idealistic backpacker side of things, you know, about the, the, the sort of the highly educated, well-intentioned side of things. And then there's the, just the exhausted people from, from, you know, wherever, Illinois or Idaho, who just or want Brooklyn. a few days. Or Brooklyn. Who just <laughs> Who's increasingly happening. <laughs> yeah. Who, who, who just totally. want a place that's warm and they don't want to have to think about speaking Spanish or Thai or <laughs> right, whatever. Right, they, right. they just want um, an escape. And so... It's easy to forget how complicated it is, and I don't think we're going to solve any problems here. But maybe we can use as an example uh, the Yossi situation, where one day this guy is trying to have an Indiana Jones adventure, yeah. and he gets lost <laughs> for three weeks. He writes a book about it, and suddenly this place where he got lost mm -hmm. has a travel industry. It's transformed. Industry. It is yeah. transfo absolutely transformed. It feels like maybe one of the, the central questions or central issues here that has its own complications is, do local people get to have a say in what happens at the place where the tourism is arriving? And that's something that came up in the Yossi story for sure. But number two is, who are the local people? Right, you know? because, right. Because there might be one local person who's like, heck yeah, I'm selling a lot of coconut jewelry. Yep. Another person is, I had a perfectly good fish farm and now they're doing motorboats through there. So mm -hmm, how mm -hmm. does that come? How do we even determine who the local person is when we, we, when we want to give a local people power over their own decisions? Well, I think, um, I think that increasingly, I'm, I have talked to some people that are um, in different countries that are working with communities that are, sometimes, that are mostly from those communities that they're working with, but um, getting whole, entire village-wide meetings. So bringing people together in the entire village or the entire town, obviously if it's somewhere like a major city, that's, that's a lot, lot more challenging, but that is happening on some levels, like in places like Barcelona or Berlin. Um, but in more rural locations, I think it's just getting, getting the community, for the community to get themselves together and say, what do we want out of this, you know? Um, so so that, that, that tourism development can't develop unless they have a stake in it or unless they have a say or some kind of cut or something like that if it's an outside operator for instance um so i think it's just increasingly making sure that everybody's being heard you know um and not to say because that sounds like a paternalistic view as well right it's right. like you know giving people it's like people being able to have their voices heard and i think um the power of the industry is it's it's you just have to break through that and um and it's but i do think it's happening more and more i, th I do think there are more people interested in having that happen um, and enabling that to happen, or for people themselves um, rising up, basically, like in Von Vieng, where the local community was saying they wanted something different well, let's talk, than the party atmosphere. Let's, I, have, um, 
I have an observation to make about all of this, but let's talk about Vong Vien, because I haven't heard this. Has, mm-hmm. has, the, has the local community basically kicked the meathead party scene out of <laughs> Vong Vien? Um, well, this, again, this is what I heard. This was like a, a, a couple years ago where I was starting to hear, you know, I knew that I remember, like you said, five years ago, like a yeah. lot of stuff yeah, was yeah. coming out in it, and I remember that too. Um, and so, so it's, more, it's relatively recently that I had heard that people were really trying to get together and really complaining about what was happening and then um, and making some changes. So I, I don't know much more about that other than um, I want to know more because I think, I think it'd be interesting even since we filmed there in 99 to kind of return um, and maybe film, film there again and make, just make a short film about what's going on, you know? One thing about from a filmmaker's perspective is that personal film has come, become so ubiquitous in the last five years that if, I think if you find the right backpackers who can document how depraved it became and, and find their little iPhone Oh yeah, videos. totally. Yes, yes. I would, I, actually, that's one of the ways we were thinking of doing it, like, all, like getting the documentation along the way because we have it from 99. Right. And maybe even from some of the, you know, I don't know if the travelers that we filmed returned would be interesting too. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious to know at what level you're aware of that governments have come into to underwrite responsible tourism development. Because I was looking over some of my old notes. I don't know if I was quoting someone or if it's just a thought that occurred to me. But there's an extent to which um, tourism develop, development can be so ragged-edged that coming in and donating to an orphanage actually might be a riskier move than coming in and donating to a policy lawyer who can help, <laughs> who can help develop the right policy for a place. Mm-hmm. And so are there government level initiatives or is it a, a grassroots thing? How can we promote responsible tourism development and where does it start um, you know, in such a way that we can avoid for-profit orphanages or yeah, right, complete right, right. knucklehead party destinations that are kind of ruining local culture and putting travelers at risk? Right, and giving travelers a pretty bad reputation too. Sure. Right, it's yeah. like. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I you know a couple of things were coming to mind, but I think I think in, we as people who travel um, can also think about it, and and people who document about travel through writing, through filmmaking, and these means. I think that it we can change the stories that we tell. Right. So just as like people promote certain places, you know, we can change the stories about what's the best way to travel like you're doing. Right. You know, so thinking about it along those lines is like, what can we do as travelers? Then what can um, local communities or governments? So there are governments that have totally taken it upon themselves. I don't think it works everywhere. Everywhere is different. Mm-hmm. But when you look at look at Bhutan and the, okay. you know, like so that's one extreme example of right. making it very expensive prohibitively. Or you look at um, Botswana. You know, mm-hmm. and what they've done, because they have actually also, but again, that's high end, the high end tourism, right? So both so of those both countries have definition. basically made it prohibitively expensive. For backpackers. Okay. Or for, not just backpackers, even for like some, low, you know, <laughs> mid-budget travelers if they want to, um, right. for some, on some level. Um, so those are the kind of extremes on that end. But I think um, other places like, and I've, I've used the example, like the um, locations within countries, where you're talking about the grassroots um, initiatives, that's just as important. And I think when they marry, the grassroots sometimes marries then um, some government regulations, because I think like carrying capacity, you know, how much can, how many people can fit in a particular place, right? 
so Machu Picchu limiting numbers or, and that's mm. still experiencing a lot of tourism, you know, so much tourism. Has Machu Picchu had closed down days? They, I know that they, well, they limited how many people can come in. They made okay. it more expensive. They, okay. you know, so they took, took um, initiatives to, to change that. Cinque Terre in Italy is a region in Italy, like five villages um, that has that makes beautiful photos. Yeah, right? totally. Yes, very much so, and that's also in why it became Instagram really like era, yeah. <laughs> yeah, became very very popular. It has been for a long time, um, but they had talks about like closing it off, just closing off the numbers and limiting the numbers of people in the entire like in the region, from what I understood. Bonito, Brazil. They when I went down as a judge for the World Travel Tourism Council. Um, to look at sustainable tourism practices, they had actually instituted long ago voucher a voucher system, knowing that it was going to be a huge ecotourism um, destination, and it and it is. Um, so I think I think some governments are doing things, you know, uh, but it's it's still like on the lower. I mean, I think Thailand's starting to to do some things too. So they are they are doing things. Do you know anything about Venice? And because it has a very famous tourism problem. Oh, very. Actually, there's a really good film. If, if you, um, there's a couple films out actually about the over-tourism now in, in Venice. Uh, one of them is called The Venice Syndrome that I um, like to show. It's, it's, but it looks at, looks at these and how locals are like having to move out basically because it's, it's what I would call a museumization of an entire destination. You know, it's really become a museum versus And explain a how place. that has happened in Venice in case listeners aren't aware of this. Well, I think cruise ships have had a major impact on that. I mean, I, you know, you'll see cruise ships towering over that's larger than, the, the, than Venice itself, it looks like. Like in this film, it just, it's incredible, the visuals that come out of that film with the cruise ships. So that's had a big, played a big role in what's happened there. Um, it's just so many people coming in daily and they just can't, ha you know, they can't handle it anymore. Plus it's going underwater. <laughs> Okay. I mean, yeah. they're they're experiencing they're really experiencing a lot of challenges because of the rising waters. So I think I think um, I think they have a lot of challenges coming up. It's amazing when we talk about this. Really, how many? If it's a battle, how many fronts it's being waged? Yeah, on? right. Climate change mixed <laughs> right. with like, you know, oh my God, so so much. And then you have Botswana, <laughs> which is a different monster entirely than than Thailand. Both of which are different than New Zealand, which has its own challenges with tourism and then the, the United States, which in a way sort of un, has underutilized itself as a tourist destination. And we don't have a ministry of culture either. I mean, ministry, sorry, we don't have a ministry of tourism. Yeah, it's weird. Which is I, kind of interesting like other countries, right? Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> and that goes back. It's just, it's, it, it's strange how that was sort of opposed, as I, as I know, sort of opposed, opposed like the Gingrich Revolution, in, which is like five or six political generations ago. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, that they basically scrubbed out the, the potential um, to have a Ministry of Tourism, which is weird because that's actually a big economic vessel that the United States could be, could be making more money as a country from mm -hmm. tourism. But for whatever reason, it was seen, government was seen as the problem. And so government didn't support tourism initiatives in the United States. And so, it, so it's strange. Um, it not, is strange, and not, I, think, I think they're doing, I mean, I think because like so many more cities have local tourism kind of offices. Right. So it's almost like the way we have states, you, you know, like we divide up all the different um, powers that be, I guess, into statewide or citywide. Right. You know, because I don't know which states actually have. It'd be interesting to look into that. 
<clears throat> well, I think like maybe some of the more successful places like Tennessee and Austin and stuff um, have had good tourism agencies. Mm -hmm. and, and not to get too political, but there's this sort of Republican idea of breaking down big government. But we've just talked about how government initiatives actually help meaningful economic stimulus mm -hmm. at the tourism level. And that's been missed in the United States. I think it's been touched on in places like Bhutan and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's like how many conversations, Peggy, do you and I want to have about how tourism <laughs> affects a place because yeah. it affects it in so many different ways, in so many different uh, socioeconomic levels. Mm -hmm. And then you have rich countries like the United States where you have poor people who, who don't travel internationally. Yeah. And, and an increasing, like the homeless population is once again on the rise in very touristy destinations like like Portland, Oregon. I recently really? took a trip to Portland, Oregon, and um, I was astounded at how many how many um, homeless are now on the streets. And it's it's same thing with San Francisco. I've been hearing. I haven't been back in a long time. Um, so these are also heavily touristed destinations. Very interesting that well, you know they're also progressive destinations. And you mm -hmm. know, I volunteered with the homeless more than twenty five years ago in Kansas. Hmm. And a lot of homeless people. Where in the in the in in like the in, rural or in, in the Wichita, city? which oh, is the hey, biggest okay. city in Kansas, about three hundred thousand people. Hmm. But you know, um, homeless people aren't dumb, and so they're they come to Kansas when it's a little bit warmer, and there's certain advantages to being there. But it's like, yep, I, they have good. They feed you in San Francisco, right? You know? <laughs> and so it's like because San Francisco is being progressive and it's being kind to homeless people. Those people are, are migrating from the Kansases because they can sort of have a, have several hot have meals a day. <laughs> right. And so actually well-intentioned initiatives can create problems where because they're kind to the homeless in San Francisco, then suddenly it creates this other problem where tourists to San Francisco are like, there sure are a lot of homeless people here. And that's... Hey. It's, it's like one well-intentioned initiative can bump up against another mm -hmm, mm -hmm. initiative. And then you know, because of certain conservative policies, we don't have a federal tourism policy. But because of certain liberal policies, we have a bunch of well-fed homeless people <laughs> sort of bumping into tourists in San Francisco and Portland. So it's a big, sprawling, complicated. It feels like you could do 10 more films about this, I know. Peggy. I know. Um, and Although I wouldn't do the next one on impact. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I, it only turned into that film, you know, because it had been the long period of time in between the filming. And so, it was so really you, returning to the destinations and seeing the impact right. travelers had. That was what happened, you know, right. um, to change it completely from the original story that I was setting out to do to realizing that the more important story to tell at that point, and this is five years ago, you know, it came out five years ago, but still we filmed in 2012, I mean, that 2011 was the last filming or 10. So it's quite a while ago now. Um, but, but I mean, the good thing is it, op I, think it, I think it opened up a conversation among some communities. I think it really, because it really traveled a lot in the, in the tourism industry. I mean, there were a lot in travel publications and general publications too, where they um, opened up that discussion, which I thought was really, was really helpful, you know? I think there'd be more solution-based. I mean, there's plenty, there's many more films starting to come out. So I think, um, and people that are offering solutions and things like that, um, where there now are some solutions out there to being discussed more. Well, it's interesting how, one, it's 2019, so it's yeah. like, it's the 20 year anniversary of your first filming. Yeah. <laughs> but what popped into my head when you were talking about this, and again, your film, despite some headlines to the contrary, is not <laughs> about just the negatives of tourism. Yeah. It's about how 
not only can tourism be personally transformative for the people who are traveling, but it can be good for, for local communities. But what has, what has also changed as Western travelers, as mostly Western travelers have gone in the world and have started to endorse a more nuanced way of travel and a more economically, locally profitable way of travel, what's happened is the biggest tourism market in the world now is Chinese people mm -hmm. who have different motivations for travel. Um, I know that there's been some studies in Paris that, that you know, Chinese travelers will stay way in the middle of nowhere in Paris because they don't care about their hotel. They want to go shopping. Right, right. right. <laughs> and so that's good for Louis Vuitton and whoever else is going on. But it also means that just when we figure out how to deal with Western tourists and travelers and make them a more nuanced and empowering part of the local community, you have a potentially, a, you have this giant new Chinese middle class that's going into, into the world with sort of different motivations. And maybe there's a backpacker class among the Chinese, but there's also status ha plays a different role for, for Chinese travelers mm -hmm. and Western travelers. And you might have, you might be back to square one as far as an overpopulation of tourism, uh, tourists uh, compromising a destination. Right, true. And not only Chinese tourists on the rise, but Indian tourists on the rise that are both low budget and mid budget, because it used to be more mid budget or upper budget. But now you're getting lower budget travelers too from these from these communities and from um, Brazil. I mean, there's there's so many more countries that uh, travelers are uh, the diversity of travelers is much more evident now in all levels of tourism budgets, and that has changed. That really has changed, including Chinese travelers. Yeah, really, really interesting to see what's going to happen. I think we sh we showed Gringo Trails. One of the first places we showed it um, after New York, the New York premiere, was at the Asia Society in Hong Kong, and that was one of the first questions somebody asked was, "What do you think is going to happen with the rise of Chinese tourists tourism um, abroad?" So I thought that was yeah, interesting. Good question. <laughs> Well, it's funny, for, for at least 20 years now, it's been a somewhat self-lacerating Western conversation. Yes. Like, travel can change us. Oh, but travel does mm -hmm. these bad things. And, of course, the answer to all the questions is yes. It does yeah, transform it does everything. you. It does do bad <laughs> things. If, if managed improperly, it can lead to development that's not sustainable. It's, if it's called like properly, human beings, right? We have all the sides of us, right? It's right. human beings on there. <laughs> and, and so I think this sort of self-lacerating Westerner thing is sort of a part of Western narcissism. At the end of the day, we're human, Chinese are human beings just like <laughs> we are, and they're going to bring their own set of problems that, you know, mm -hmm. that be, just because they're non-Westerners doesn't mean they're going to have a, a way of travel that is better than us, but because they're people, they like places that are warm. You know, they, mm -hmm. they, they get lonely and they get bored and they want to eat good food and they want to eat familiar food mm -hmm. and it creates a, a, a whole new problem. And they're going to see things also through their cultural lens, just like we do through ours. And I, I you know, I think the difference from when I first started traveling, for instance, to to the present is that, again, going back, back to the diversity of travelers, but of even the European, even the European and South American and, um, and American travelers and Canadian and New Zealand, Australia, um, there, there is a, a much greater diversity within of different background cultures from those places. What hasn't changed so much is the class that they emanate from. So the, the economics of the traveler, whether they're traveling as a budget backpacker or middle class or upper class, they often come from middle class to upper class communities. 
So whether, whatever background they have within those communities. So I think that's the com you know, more of a common denominator that I will still find it'd be interesting if that's true with the Chinese tourists as well, if they're coming mainly and, and because the economics have gotten better, so that's what you're gonna find. You're gonna find the people that have the money or came from that background that have that in the you know, back of their heads or have that privilege that you know, we enjoy to be able to go where we wanna go. Well, privilege is an interesting word to use because I think a lot of the conversations that happen within travel or travel are really domestic class distinctions. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this idea, I'm a traveler and not a tourist, mm -hmm. or look at those loud meathead party people. I mean, I've, I've sort of disparaged loud meathead party people before, but I think it's, you're more likely to get a first time traveler sort of be of the, the high working class or lower mm -hmm. middle class who come in and do things that sort of a more sophisticated bearing, a more upper class travel bearing would look down upon. Mm -hmm. And I think that's gonna happen with, with, with Chinese travelers too, that, that as tra Chinese travelers of a higher class become more sophisticated, they're going to look down on the, the more vulgar um, bullseye middle class or lower middle class traveler, when in fact, maybe this conversation has always been about class differentiation and mm -hmm. how- And power. And power, yeah. Power, power and privilege. You know, like we, we I mean, somebody, a couple of things about that. It's like in, in the film, we show this one guy who's Australian. Um, he's Chinese-Australian. Um, and he was, you know, touching a snake. And, um, you know, he, I said, why do you want to touch a snake? Because they had told them not to. He said, oh, because I can. And he said, later on, we were at a little, they had a backpacker gathering or something. And, I, and he said to me, oh, I hope I'm not gonna be on the cutting room floor. I said, oh no, I don't think so. <laughs> Definitely well, not because well, you just, that's exactly what we're talking about is, is that is the because I can idea. Um, and that's why, and I think that's what happened like with people when they said, well, well, I can't travel to Bhutan. I can't, you know, I can't afford it, you know, but, but then what's our right to travel anywhere, anytime, anyway, right? So I think that, yeah, so it was, it's just been interesting questions to think about with that, with the class and privilege. Yeah, yeah, and then a few moments later in your documentary, a guide or someone says, well, actually, your mosquito repellent makes it dangerous mm -hmm. to touch the snake. Right, right. right. <laughs> um, and so there's, one, people need to be educated, mm -hmm. and travelers, by definition, are completely ignorant of a place. You know, they're coming yeah. in, they've maybe read about it, uh, but then local people have to be trained to, 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 to educate local people in a certain way. And then another memorable part of your documentary is a woman who goes to Timbuktu just because she heard about it and she yeah. romanticized it. And then she gets there and it's sort of an empty city and she's not sure what to do. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I think- I like, I, and I love her honesty too, because yeah. she's totally honest about having conflated like, you know, out of Africa with Lawrence of Arabia, with like all these totally different places that have nothing to do with, you know, Mali and, the, and Timbuktu. But she was totally, I love her. I loved her honesty and vulnerability without saying, you know, this is what I was thinking, and that, and I thought I was invisible. I thought like I could do whatever, and you know, instead of thinking about what that meant, you know, what her role there meant or whatever, and also not knowing what to do, right? Just because it was in her head, it's imaginative, like imagination of the place yeah. was so long in her head that she, you know, she was so excited, and it was for me too. I remember, you know, because we went with them because we were filming. <laughs> yeah. So I remember also thinking, oh, I've heard so much the myth around Timbuktu, right? Right. Well, there's a lot of people in my audience who are dreaming of travel and, yeah. and, and they're going to go to a place and they're going to know it in a more nuanced way when they get there, mm -hmm. but they don't want to ruin a place, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, you have uh, local communities who don't know yet that they actually need to train 
travelers to not pick up the snake and to and to be mm -hmm. a little bit more careful and that there's this idea of preserving traditional culture but there's also local people will embrace tourism because they want money too sure you know? sure and they also love having new people coming in i mean it's exciting it's different you know yeah um you know i think it, in, in in the film we had a number of guides that were discussing that role of like we need to educate or if they you know if we don't they're they're not going to stop of course unless they somebody says something yeah. <laughs> and, they, um, and they don't right? mean to be travelers don't mean to be crass no. it's just they don't Here's a snake. I get to touch a snake. Exactly. And a lot of people also, you know, have to think like in terms of the backpacker market, you know, they're mostly young, they're youth travelers, a lot of them. So some people, even those first five years traveling out, even though they're going to lots of different places over five, seven years, they're still on the younger end. It's, all, you know, all the discovery mode and all the like being away from home. And, you know, there's all that involved with it, too, um, of how they're what the, what kind of actions they do. So on, on the more policy level, and even for people in my audience who might be more on, on the more conservative side, how can we, how can we um, support policies? What, kind of poli what do policies look like that are not only protecting areas, but also making money for people? Because I think one way to protect local wildlife or local culture is to make it profitable for people who live there. Mm -hmm in such a way that can, can please the economic conservative as well as the social liberal and everybody. So exactly, let's talk exactly. about that a little bit. Well, I, you're, yeah, I mean, you're definitely like hitting the nail on the head because like in the, in the end, tourism is among the top industries in the world. So yes, why, were, why are they not thinking, why not do that instead of mining? I mean, if we were talking, you know, if we were talking about the oil industry, people would be thinking all different, all different levels about this, right? But with tourism, because it's considered leisure, Somehow it's they're still not get. I, I think you know people like well Trump's not getting anything, but <laughs> he's doing it. But, but it yeah. is it has as much muscle. I think it has, it has more much, muscle than mining. It, it, it has does, as much muscle as, as oil. And exactly. It has the potential to protect totally. things that could be lost forever, like endangered wildlife yeah. and or even endangered reviving culture. certain things yeah. and reviving certain practices that you know some of us have even in my own culture, you know, like Irish background culture or something, some of the things yeah. that you want to learn about that are like, oh, you know, that are being revived for, for tourism. So, so, so managed yeah. correctly, it's a win-win thing. Totally. Economically totally. and environmentally and mm -hmm. culturally. So how can we, yeah. ha, how can we implore our policymakers to, to be more cognizant of this? I think we need to, but I think things like the World Travel Tourism councils and, and the world, you know, World Tourism Forum, the UN for, um, for, you know, like all of these like more official organizations that are globally based or globally used um, and disseminate information globally. I think these are great places to start or continue with to get, um, you know, studies out there to, to petitions if need be and so forth. Or I look at, I look at like the places like there's, you know, how do places themselves also you know, vie for what they want themselves, both monetarily, and maybe that's part of the, the question that never gets put in there, is like when we're talking about how they want, communities want to control their tourism, how do they then say what kind of money we want to be making and how? And so that could be part of it too, um, of going to your local government, going to your, you know, going to the national government and say, let's get some more policies going. Yeah, well, on the progressive side, it's almost as if we've come to the point where it, we see making money as a bad thing, yeah. you know. People who make money are the bad guys, but really, it's it, it feels like, and there's not a perfect. It's not a perfect science. We're not, we're not living a in very martyr situation, ragged edge <laughs> thing. Yeah, 
that, that you can, that sometimes the best way to save environmental areas or endangered cultures is to find ways to sort of monetize our fascination with that. Yeah, rather than just the protection, right? Because yeah. look at the UNESCO, it's kind of, you know, UNESCO heritage sites were meant to protect areas, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, then they, and then they brought in tourism. But on the other hand, now it's almost, I mean, there's, there, there, it's a dime a dozen now how many places are getting designated, right? right. So w there, was a, there was a filmmaker in um, uh, Australia, an Aboriginal filmmaker, um, Philbra, I think is back there. He, he um, Ty, uh, t um, Tyson Moirin, that's his name. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in his film, he talks about an area that you have no monument, you have nothing, it's just land. And how here we're at least considering that in the States, but there he's like, I can't say, I'm telling people it's sacred or this is sacred. And yet, because there's not a thing there, a monument, something, right. we can't, he can't get, they can't get protection for it, right? Because it's just flat, wide open space, but right. it's a sacred area, you know? Um, anyway, just, well, yeah. Maybe like, monuments are, are sort of our postmodern way of saying that this place is sacred. And what I think that we've all forgotten is that a sacred place can actually be profitable. You know, the, the connection between pilgrimage and tourism is strong. And we forget sometimes how many inns stayed in business and how much money monks made in the Holy yeah. Land because of pilgrims. And actually how often pilgrims like copulated with each other and yeah, drank right. too much. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, we, we, we sometimes we, we get pie in the sky about our ideals and we forget that actual, that actual interaction and money changing hands has always been a way that we've traveled and that we've mm -hmm. had sacred places. Exactly. Um, and that if we could just remind ourselves that it doesn't need to be a divisive political issue that we can, if we can find ways to make money in a way that is beneficial for, for everybody. Yeah. And I've always thought of it as a win-win situation. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, but, but it's getting everybody at the table. And I think yeah. that's the difference. It's just, everybody's got to be at the table in, in the discussions, whether it's the travelers, you know, the, the local communities, the government representative, the, you know, the tourism developer, like any of these different levels that, um, whether it's virtually at the table, <laughs> yeah. you know, at, 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 you know, a written at virtual table. <laughs> or, or even the corporations who mm -hmm. I guess deserve to live too, but if they could, if they could um, speak more with local yes. communities and they can also enrich local people yeah. while they, while their investors make money. You exactly. Know? They have to know, you know, because the bottom, a lot of the bottom line is money. If people know they're going to make money, mm -hmm. then they'll, they'll do something about it. So it's like getting the, yeah, getting the people with more power that to know that actually it's going to be a profitable thing if they protect places and right. that it's a win-win. Exactly. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Peggy Vale's documentary film Gringo Trails, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm -hmm.